On the hunt for a new kind of wine tasting experience, North Carolina's lush mountains, rolling landscapes, and barrier island beaches form stunning backdrops for more than 185 tasting rooms. To top it off, the state boasts six distinct grape-growing regions that have earned the designation of American Viticultural Areas. To plan your trip, download the NC Wine app or visit ncwine.org. Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode, we talk to David Bauer from the Shelton Badgett, North Carolina Center for Viticulture and Enology at Surrey Community College. David talks to us about his role at Surrey Community College as the winemaker and enology instructor. Quality is the biggest driver, and David teaches his students that when you respond to the quality of the fruit, you will end up with a higher quality wine. Wine Class with the Wine Mouths is back again. This time they talk to us about sparkling wines and why they're not just for special occasions. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council. You can learn more about the council by going to their website, ncwine.org. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we are here uh, for our episode, last episode of Cork Talk for the Year with David Bauer from the Shelton Badgett North Carolina Center for Viticulture and Enology at Surrey Community College. That's quite a mouthful. David, welcome to Cork Talk. Hi, thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about who you are and how, what you do at Surrey Community College. Sure. Um, so again, my name is David Bauer. I'm the enology instructor for Surrey Community College. And what does that mean? Well, I teach all of the different enology classes and all the wine marketing classes for the college. And uh, I do some things on the side as well. I teach for Sonoma State University um, and I teach in their wine business program. And then I also teach for VESTA, the Viticulture and Enology Science and Technology Alliance, uh, which is based out of Missouri State University. And I teach their, inter- their uh, intermediate winemaking classes. Um, at Surrey, I do all the different uh, winemaking tasks with the students as well. So we do have a six-acre on-campus vineyard, which is across the street from the college. And uh, we make wine for, with the students, with all those uh, grapes that come in from that vineyard. So talk a little bit about um, how the center got started and the program at Surrey got started. Well, it was back in 1999 uh, when there were some there was some interest with uh, continuing education classes, and those continuing education classes kind of are maybe the start when when whenever you start a program uh, or you have interest from an industry maybe even starting a program continuing education kind of is like the idea to test the water, and so we were testing the water in 1999, just kind of seeing if there was an interest in starting a program or seeing if people would even take winemaking classes. You know, of course, being in North Carolina, uh, it was uh, interesting to kind of start that out and just uh, see what would happen. And uh, it worked. You know, there were people that were interested. And it was in 2001 when the program really started uh, up and uh, the degree program started. Um, The program itself was started in a different area of the college from what it is now. And it was really a grassroots 
type of movement, I would say. Uh, we worked with whatever we had and we pulled together what we could. And then slowly but surely, we started accumulating equipment and really building the program up um, over a long period of time. It wasn't until uh, 2012 when the Shelton Badgett Center opened up. Um, and uh, that's, I was hired right uh, around that time. So how did you get started in all this, David? It sounds like a really exciting thing. So what, what kind of interested you to get into this? Uh, into the wine industry? <laughs> uh, well, wine industry and then also, you know, here with uh, with, with Surrey. Um, well, I guess I didn't really have an idea. I, I, well, I guess I always really wanted to teach. Um, and I think that's something that I've always, always wanted to do just growing up, uh, attending classes. I did an education minor at Cornell University where I did my degree uh, in enology and viticulture and plant science. I originally thought that I was going to go into plant science uh, and uh, thought that, you know, I was going to be a landscape architect. Uh, I didn't think that I was going to get into the wine industry, even though that's what I grew up in. Uh, grew up in with my with my my dad who has a winery um, and uh, my mom who is a professor of dental hygiene actually so I kind of have uh, a little bit of education background and I kind of have that hard knocks background as well my dad uh, is a uh, is a hard I would I would describe him as an incredibly hard worker and as an entrepreneur you know he has his uh, his his winery he has uh, a business that sells uh, kits, uh, winemaking kits and brewing kits uh, to uh, all sorts of different stores. And so I grew up with him always uh, working at uh, on, on something. It was always something creative. And so I think I uh, always wanted to do something creative, but then I always wanted to do something with plants. You know, I think that plants kind of always were my thing, uh, so to speak. And so I thought, well, I'll just do plant science. And at the time that I was coming out of high school, I didn't want to do anything with the winery. <laughs> uh, but, uh, I kind of met over my time at Cornell, I, ha I met some really, really great professors. Uh, I, I would say that over that time period, I kind of slowly started getting into viticulture. Uh, viticulture kind of was like where I began. And then uh, I slowly but surely met another professor, um, Kath Kathleen Arnink, a really wonderful professor. And she kind of pushed me a little bit. And then I met an, uh, another professor, Ramon uh, de Ortega. And really wonderful, again, another wonderful professor. And we had just opened up. Uh, at Cornell at the at this it was it, the program was just starting when I was in it they had just opened up this really small what they called pilot winery and it was tiny it was just a white floor and it just had you know brick walls uh, not brick walls but cinder block walls and uh, we would all get in there and they had like small uh, small equipment and we would all work in there with Ramon and Kathy and uh, I just kind of felt in love with it. Uh, I had made wine with my dad previous and I had managed his tasting room growing up. Uh, and then, you know, on, on the farm we had apples, peaches, and cherries and we ripped those out and planted grapes. And, uh, I kind of, so I had already had, you know, a good amount of exposure and a lot of support from the industry when I did start up 
at Cornell uh, from the New York industry. I had, you know, letters written, um, you know, saying that, you know, I should I would be a really great fit for Cornell and all that and uh, had a lot of really great support. But again, started in viticulture and then really it was a slow journey over to winemaking. Um, but I just uh, I don't know what it is, the creativity of it and then also the science. I think I like both aspects of it. Uh, I feel I feel that I really like both aspects of that creativity and that science and really just kind of how that all comes together um, and in, in a way. And I think that that's really what led me into winemaking. And then really, truly, I did not know what I was going to do when I <laughs> when I started. Uh, trying to figure out what I would when I was going to graduate trying to figure out a job and it was really my parents uh, they both were uh, very supportive in, in trying helping me figure out you know what I wanted to do uh, I saw I thought you know my first instinct was to go out on Long Island uh, Long Island's industry is uh, wonderful it's uh, really was one of those things that uh, we were really um, we, we were put into at, at Cornell. We went out to Long Island a couple of times, uh, and we met all the different industry members out there on Long Island. And it was really, really beautiful. And I learned a lot from, uh, going out there. I really did. I met Barbara Shin, who owned a biodynamic vineyard out there. And she actually came to our symposium one time and she talked about biodynamics. I would think it was the first symposium we ever had. So I met her and I met a number of other really influential winemakers uh, out on Long Island. And so my first instinct was, yeah, I'm going to go out on Long Island. Uh, but I got out there and, you know, I had a bunch of interviews for assistant winemakers and uh, positions. And I thought to myself, there's no way I'm going to make it out here by myself. <laughs> there's no way I was going to it was going to happen. Um, and so on a whim, you know, I saw a job posting for Surrey. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, I'll give it a shot. I've got a winemaking background. Uh, I've been making wine with my dad. Uh, and uh, I've got this you know, degree that I recently finished. And uh, I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to give it a shot. And I did. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, it's all been absolutely wonderful since I since I started. I, uh, I like to joke I had an interview committee of 12 people. Uh, but when I talk about it, I think that uh, it was uh, it was really again on a whim, and it was one of those things where oh, I just will I'll see what happens. Uh, I was moving away from home, you know, which was big for me, and uh, moving to a new state and not knowing you know anybody or anything uh, much about the state, and so I thought, well, I'll just give it a shot, and here I am now. Um, I'll be rounding out, I guess it'll be nine years in January, moving into my 10th year at the college. Wow, that's pretty awesome. So what was the program like when you got there and then what changes have been made since? Well, the, the program when I first arrived was uh, in, a, in a good state, in a pretty good state. Um, I would say, you know, that we had a lot of growing that we could do. There was a lot of opportunity uh, just because the new Shelton Badgett Center had just opened up. Uh, so I mean, you have this big, beautiful uh, North Carolina Center for Viticulture and Enology and all this really wonderful equipment. And so the opportunities really were endless. Um, 
we started out, I started out and, you know, of course we started bringing in fruit and it was a very high energy first season. And as we kind of move forward, you know, we started getting into all sorts of different things. I mean, we, we started, um, a sparkling program, uh, in 2013 and we were the only college in, uh, on the East coast to have a traditional method sparkling program that actually teaches students how to do that. And I did that because, I thought that North Carolina was a perfect place to make sparkling wine. And I didn't understand why nobody was making sparkling wines. Now, you know, of course, there are a couple of people, Bill Moore and Childress, that really do the traditional method. But I thought to myself, this is a skill that, that future winemakers definitely need to have. And so it was interesting. Um, I actually got all of the funding for that program through the 50th anniversary of the college and through the foundation. So the college was hosting a 50th anniversary um, year and they were uh, doing all sorts of different events uh, related to the 50th anniversary. And uh, it was uh, basically Marion Venable, who's still at the college there. She works with the foundation. And I said, you know, to her, well, it was really her. She said to me, she said, if there's anything you ever need, let me know. And I said, well, of course, there's always things that, you know, you need. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said to her, uh, well, I'd love to do a 50th anniversary sparkling, but I don't, I know we don't have any funding in the program to do that and to purchase that equipment because it's going to be a pretty, uh, it's going to be a pretty large expense to purchase that equipment. And so she said, well, all right, well, we'll do that. Uh, we'll get you that equipment. And I said, well, in return, um, let me make a 50th anniversary sparkling for the college to give away to the donors, to the board of trustees. Um, and so we did that and, uh, we have still have some of that original vintage in our uh, little wine library that we have down in, uh, one in our, building. So we have a small wine library of wines that um, I started to keep uh, wines from every single vintage so that students, if they ever come back or um, if the current students ever want to taste uh, previous vintages, we can go down there and do that. So the sparkling wine program uh, was really, really, really uh, awesome. I think uh, for the college and just in general, we've done so well with our sparkling wines. We've won best sparkling in the state and we've been rated by James Suckling for our sparkling. And I think that we do sparkling really, really well. And that's just one of the things that I think shows you that North Carolina can make real great quality wine one, but also really great quality sparkling wine. And there's not enough people doing that. I know there are more people getting into it now, uh, but it's, you know, been years. And we're kind of the ones that, in my opinion, I think that we've done a really good job at pushing that forward into the industry. So that's just one thing. But on, on top of that, we started a, a marketing program as well. I was uh, I was thinking about this and it was probably around 2013, 2014, and there were no marketing classes <laughs> in the curriculum. It was all viticulture and analogy. There was no marketing. There was no business uh, that was specifically focused on uh, viticulture and analogy. And so I thought, oh, OK, uh, well, we need to add this to the program. This is really important because if you, you know, you can make wine, but the hardest part of the whole wine equation 
is selling wine um, and marketing. I I don't think that I, I don't think I think that making wine is easy. Uh, it takes a little bit of luck uh, and it takes a little bit of skill. Uh, but at the other end, I think it really takes a special person to sell a bottle of wine. So I said, okay, well, let's try and add marketing classes. And my department chair at the time, Ashley uh, Morrison, was really into that. Uh, she was really into that. And I, and I said, yeah, let's do it. So we added it to the curriculum. And now it's, it's part of that. So we teach a wine marketing class and we teach a wine design and uh, implementation class. So it's basically a, how to build a wine brand up from the start. And then uh, the business aspects uh, that are related, and then also how to design a winery. Um, and then just recently, uh, again, with Ashley and uh, really working forward with her, we always wanted to do a tasting room management certificate. And that was something that I had been championing for like at least at least four or five years, uh, really trying so hard to put that out there and eventually uh, she went for it and we worked on it and I wrote the program, uh, was, I guess now three years ago. And this was our first year that we started with our tasting room management program. Uh, really cool. I, 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 I started teaching it this semester and we have, it's all online. Oh, cool. Uh, so we can teach anyone, you know, anywhere. And uh, we have that, you know, have that ability. And we built, we started building all the classes. So we have um, Ms. Bowman, Ms. Sarah Bowman teaching her fundamentals of enology and viticulture, which is a one credit course that overviews the viticulture enology um, industry and also the, t the different ideas that are associated with uh, just basic viticulture and enology, and that course is taught every semester. Uh, it's great. We have great enrollment in that, and uh, it's a brand-new course. And then I have a wine-tasting course that we just did that we actually teach online, which is kind of wild. Uh, and then a tasting room management uh, and operations course, which I started this year, which I absolutely love teaching. It's one of those things that I grew up in the tasting room, and worked as a manager in my dad's tasting room. And so I saw it uh, pretty much all. <laughs> and uh, it was just one of those things that I thought was a perfect fit for me. Um, and so I'm really happy to teach that. And next semester, we're launching our wine finance and our wine business courses, uh, which will be taught by a new instructor. Uh, but that's just brand new. Um, those will be uh, courses that will have uh, that will be coming up. And then I'll teach my wine marketing class, which I've been doing now for, uh, I guess, seven, seven, eight years, six, six, seven, eight years. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> that's awesome. So that a lot of great a lot of great things going on right now. So backing up just a little bit, you had mentioned the sparkling program and what you didn't see off camera is that Joe was cheering. We, uh, yeah, he has been absolutely. a huge proponent of sparkling wine in, in North Carolina saying that, you know, this is where we need to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that sparkling wine is underutilized in the North Carolina wine portfolio. Yes. I think that we can, I think that really we can push with sparkling and really become well known for it. Um, and not just traditional method sparkling. We, uh, two, I guess it's now been about a year and a half, but we're releasing a new line of wines, uh, called, uh, Surrey labs. And we designed a new label with my wine marketing class. 
and it's cool. It's, you know, it's cut out and you can actually see inside the wine and we're exploring um, on that label. It's our experimental label. We're exploring nutritional labeling uh, with that label. Uh, but uh, specifically with sparkling, we branched out and we uh, did pet nets. So petulant natural wines, uh, which are wild fermented, single fermented, uh, wild fermented um, sparkling wines that have about as much pressure as a can of soda, but a maybe a little bit more. They're fizzy um, and they're delicious and they have all the sediment down in the bottom of the bottle, but they're super fruity and um, they're really, really, really fun. And so those wines are actually coming out on our new line called Surrey Labs, which is where all the students can do all their crazy, funky projects <laughs> and we can release them in really, really small amounts. And uh, all the wine shops will love that because it's super unique and super fun. And so this is a opportunity, I think, for students to just explore their wild side, you know, uh, and uh, really direct, uh, you know, they direct the process. But really, if they wanted to do something really interesting, they could do it. I mean, we do natural wines. We do wild buildup cultures on that line. Um, all sorts of different things that students probably may, maybe wouldn't have the ability to do at a traditional winery. But, you know, I always say that um, you need to be able to make mistakes at school. You should be making mistakes at school. And if there's a project that you want to do and get the experience um, on, uh, then you should do it here. And uh, we do those things. And I'm happy to do those things with the students. Well, that's really exciting. So the past little bit, you've talked about a lot of the different classes and things like that. Talk to us a little bit about what the actual program looks like. So what would a prospective student expect when they're going into this over the course of their education? In terms of what the program looks like, well, in your first year, the first class that you take uh, is Introduction to Viticulture and Grape Harvest. So we always like to joke, uh, Ms. Bowman, is that the first day of class, we actually put you in the vineyard and you're harvesting grapes. Uh, you hit the ground running. Uh, you jump uh, with two feet first in the swimming pool, uh, however you like to think about it. But um, you're there and you're out in the vineyard and it's hot and it's muggy and you're sweating and you're going to be wet when you get done. Uh, maybe you'll be even covered in sweat, uh, but you're out there and you're harvesting grapes. And so that grape harvest class was something that we added probably about four years ago. It was not something part of the original program, but it was really necessary for us because it was important for the students to get that grape harvesting experience and to really hit the ground running with that. So we really enjoy that class. And so introduction to viticulture is in that first semester, introduction to winemaking. Um, and so they make wine in a five gallon carboy and they're out in the vineyard with Sarah and really getting a good deep dive into just all of the aspects of viticulture and enology. And then that second semester, they do grape and wine science, which is uh, specifically a uh, a chemistry, grape and wine chemistry course. And uh, Sarah works with soil chemistry and she does uh, all sorts of bind balance uh, labs and all sorts of different things in both viticulture and enology. So that's uh, grape and wine science. 
Uh, and then slowly but surely, and there's a number of other uh, prerequisites and things that they have to take from general education and they have to take English and um, all sorts of different things there in that first semester. But those are the viticulture and enology, enology courses. Um, but then in their second year, they kind of move over to um, the winemaking piece. Uh, in the first year, they do a lot of viticulture. And in that second semester, they also do an establishment cl class, a vineyard, a vineyard establishment class where they go out and they actually plant grapevines and they work in the vineyard and they do all sorts of different trellising exper experiments and they work in, and do those things. Uh, and then in that second year, they really hit the ground running with production. And that's where they kind of enter into the winery with me. Um, and that first, usually that first day of class, they are harvesting and they are processing grapes. Uh, we have, uh, as I've said before, we have state-of-the-art equipment that um, I wrote with our dean. Um, we, 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 we got funding uh for these different pieces of equipment, a sorting table, and we have uh, this uh, distemmer that is really, really awesome. Um, there's a whole story back behind that and the kind of the, the reasoning there about that distemmer and the sorting table, but I can go into that at, at a different time. But uh, we, we, did a, we, we did a lot of really intense quality uh, assessment when I, when I started, and uh, those were two implements that we really needed uh, in order to really elevate the quality of the fruit. Um, so we uh, have them do production, and then uh, they do uh, – so they do production, and they do some uh, pests and disease and disorders with Sarah, uh, which – if you know anything about growing grapes in North Carolina, you know that you, one, have to know how to spray, and two, you have to be able to go in your vineyard and scout and identify pests. If you don't do those things, then you are not going to be successful. I just, I don't believe it. Um, I, I think that uh, you have to be able to do those things, and you have to be able to do them well. And so that class is such a key class for growing in this uh, microclimate. Um, so that is the course in that second, uh, that second fall. And then in the final semester, they do production, uh, again. So it's like a finishing and packaging class. And so we actually have, uh, and we were lucky enough to receive funding, uh, in conjunction with, uh, some really special state funding. We received a brand new bottling line, oh, cool. uh, about now two years ago, a uh, year and a half ago now. Uh, and, uh, it's state of the art. And we are the only ones on the East Coast at a college program that uh, uh, have a screw capping apparatus that have a screw capping apparatus on, on top of it. So we've switched actually all of our white wines and rosés over to screw caps. Okay. And so the students actually get to finish uh, bottle and finish wines in uh, screw caps for that uh, final class. We also are corking reds. Um, they do blends in that class and a number of different other things, but then they also take wine marketing and, uh, wine and wine design, uh, that semester as well. So that's just a brief overview, uh, of the, of the program, but there are a number of other classes that are involved too. That's awesome. Sounds like a really well-rounded program. We say, uh, the program is from grape to bottle, <laughs> <That's a great laughs> but really, yeah, but yeah, sorry, but really, it's even beyond the bottle too. 
uh, because the students actually in a normal year, you know, uh, without a, a pandemic, uh, we would actually be going out to festivals and we would be actually taking the wines that the students made in their first semester there or uh, the grapes that they harvested and actually selling those wines. So they literally take what they <laughs> what they harvested on their first day and they sell it on their last day. And it's just, uh, there's nowhere, there's no, there's nowhere on the East coast that does that. Um, it's just super unique and there's, the program is, is, is wild in that way. So you mentioned selling the wine, so that might be a good time to talk about how do people find and buy the wines that are produced by the students in you? Sure. Um, we're in the process of hiring a uh, marketing person that works uh, with a number of different accounts. Um, we kind of focus on smaller wine shops uh, that can sell our wine. Um, if you want to go to ncviticulturecenter.edu, you can see where what our accounts are. Uh, we have a number of different accounts throughout the state. Probably, I think now we have about 20 or 25 different accounts throughout the state. Different, or so, all sorts of different ones that we we have three different lines, four different lines, five different lines now. <laughs> uh, and it's just fun because the students can release a wine under whatever line they want, you know, uh, just depending upon the quality. And so uh, we have some wine shops that like to pick up our mid range, our survey sellers line. There's some that pick up our Blue Ridge, which is slightly sweet. Uh, there's some that pick up our reserve, and then there's some that pick up specialty like sparkling, or uh, a lot of wine shops are now really interested in our labs. So, uh, because what we do is we actually will take students out to the, the wine shops, and whatever works best for that wine shop's brand, that's the line or the wine that they pick up. So, we'll take them out and we'll actually will sell in that wine marketing class to those, um, to those different wine shops. Very cool. Very awesome. So we're actually at a really good spot to take a quick little break. But then when we get back, let's talk a little bit about some of those wines that you're producing, uh, either for commercial or some cool things that you've done in the past. And then you also sure. mentioned quality. And I know that's a big thing. So we're going to really hit on that topic, too. Okay. Sounds good. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Hey, Nate. So good to be here. So what wine fun are we going to have today? We're going to be rounding out the season with talking about sparkling wine. Mm, it's a good way to begin or end, really. True, true. So where do we start? Well, we're going to start with how it's made. Yeah. Makes sense. Starting with the traditional method. So Jesse's going to talk us through that. Mm. Basically, you start with white wine. You treat it like white wine. The only different kind of up front is you want it to have higher acidity than normal. So you may pick your grapes a little earlier or go for grapes that have higher acidity, but you make your normal wine. Um, so then with your normal wine, you put it in a bottle that's super thick and you add a little bit more um, yeast and sugar to the bottle, just a little bit, and you put a cap on it. And you let it sit. So what you're doing is you're taking wine and you're causing a second fermentation to happen inside of the bottle. And so what that does, obviously, is it creates more alcohol, but it also creates CO2, which because it's in that heavy glass and it's capped, 
it gets turned into part of the wine. So that's what gives you your bubbles. So after that sits and it's done with its second fermentation, somebody very quickly uncaps that, gets the yeast out, and recaps it basically for you to drink. So it's quite the process and it's a lot of fun. There's a bunch of different techniques to get rid of that yeast because I think we've talked about before, but once the yeast eats all the sugar, it dies, but it doesn't go away. So it kind of just falls mm -hmm. into this yucky slurry oh. in the wine. Please, yes. So they'll turn the bottle on its side called a riddling rack and slowly turn it over time so that all of that junk falls into the very neck of the bottle. You know, a long time ago, they would take a sword and yeah. chop off the neck and let the junk fall out and then rebottle the wine. Now they're fancy and they'll freeze the neck so that that sediment kind of comes out in one plug before they rebottle. Sounds like quite the process just for a bottle of wine. Yeah. And that's, I mean, a lot of times you can see that reflected in the price, but that's why mm -hmm. traditional sparkling wine is usually quite pricey because they've made normal wine and then they've made it again basically right. they've done a second fermentation so and it takes more time more resources and materials and all that so. a lot more handling too so yeah, yeah exactly well and in olden times they came across uh, sparkling wines and this method were, were kind of invented accidentally but as they were learning how to work with it there were actually like cage like body cages that people would wear to protect themselves <laughs> Google it and find the pictures, but just you know, from the bottles and, and things exploding, and just the technology that had to develop to keep up to keep pace with like the heavier, thicker glass that needed that was required for bottling. And yeah, I could see, uh, you know, with modern technology that being a definite benefit to this because no one wants an exploding bottle of wine that's glass and shards and it could be very dangerous. <laughs> well, and you want to minimize waste too. Because <laughs> Exactly. Make wine and, and sell it. So. Mm -hmm. so, and then there's more modern methods of making sparkling without quite all of that to do, I suppose. Right. You can do all of that secondary fermentation in the tank. So you're not individually bottling wine and doing a fermentation inside the bottle. You can kind of just do it in the tank itself and capture that CO2. You can also even use like a beer tank and force CO2 into the wine without even going through a secondary fermentation at all. Yeah, I feel like that's cheating. <laughs> An easy way out for sure. <laughs> yeah. But like Prosecco falls in that second group. So Prosecco is done in tank. It's not done bottle to bottle. Which is a nice segue to talking about the different types of sparkling. Who doesn't love a lot of options? Right. <laughs> exactly. And with wine, you get this. <laughs> so I'm sure people are familiar with be saying that you know you can only call it champagne if it's from champagne and that is very true there's a, a region in france that is the place that champagne can be made and only in that place can it be called champagne champagne's going to be or can only be made from three different grape varietals and so you know that's very tied to the terroir and the history of that region um and made in the traditional method there's also cava which comes from spain and it's a pretty close match to champagne, but typically cheaper. Yeah, and but it's done in the traditional method. Yeah. Okay, so all the all the hand holding and labor and love goes into the kava as it does the the champagne. And then you have prosecco, which is Italy, specifically the Veneto region of Italy, and like Jesse was saying, made in the tank method and meant to be enjoyed young, so not one that you would age or you know keep for a while. It's made to be drunk. Yeah, or and quickly, but soon after bottling. 
a fun party term is that tank method is called the Charmant method. One for the wine vocabulary for sure. Exactly. (laughs) And then anywhere else that sparkling is made, it can be made in the traditional method and it will be noted as such, but they can't call it that, even if it's made with the same grapes that they would use in traditional sparkling. So the correct term is probably to use sparkling wine unless you know specifically that it's cava or champagne or prosecco um, as a broad term. So when's the Correct. best when's the best time to have sparkling wine? Well, we think all the time. Mm-hmm. I would agree but with that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of times it's a celebratory thing, you know, um, which makes sense. It's fun. It's usually more expensive. So, you know, you do want to sometimes save that for fancy occasions. Mm-hmm. But I will say a lot of canned wine now is being made with sparkling, which is kind of nice because it gives you that carbonation like a can of soda would. Mm-hmm. Um Right. So it's kind of a nice segue for drinking sparkling wine while you're outside or doing things where you'd want a can. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it just makes it accessible and portable and a little more casual, which sometimes you want. Yeah. Obviously, they have the little mini bottles, which are so cute. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect for mimosas or brunch. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, but I think you can have sparkling anytime. We're, we're with you on that one. We we really enjoy sparkling pretty much whenever. We we will, you know, if it is a special occasion, we'll definitely have that. Or uh, if we happen to be having, you know, friends over or something like that, when we can have friends over socially distancing and all, um, you know, we'll, we'll maybe start out with the sparkling wine as kind of like a welcome or like the, the, the first thing that everyone enjoys because who doesn't love a nice little glass of bubbly when you first get there? Absolutely. Yeah. We will say, though, from experience, don't waste your good bottles of sparkling on a New Year's Eve party crowd. Mm. You will just cry as you see all <laughs> those wine glasses left with. <laughs> yes, I, I would agree with that. Because at that so, point, people are just kind of ready to be done and <laughs> not going to appreciate it. So, Right. It's like, OK, I'm going to down this and then go home. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, well, riddle me this. Uh, I liked what you did there. (laughs) Um, Do you ever have sparkling left in the bottle after you open it, or are you usually able to finish it off? Yeah, we usually don't have an issue with with finishing it. So it's not one of those things. It's very difficult to leave it over, leave it, you know, for a day or so, because it's obviously going to lose the carbonation uh, bubbles, uh, unless you have some vacuum sealer or something to, to. try to get the thing with the air out and, and that was my leading so. question to, to yeah. find out if you had any ideas on yeah i know that there are gadgets out there and devices <clears throat> even for home use like uh, on that scale i or, will say like that, a corker but yeah, i haven't tried any of them i have one of the i mean you just squeeze it on and it has little legs that go mm-hmm. around the neck and i mean it only usually is good for one night but it that's probably the best gadget and I don't even know if you'd call it a gadget because it's just a shopper but that's one of the best wine tools I have in my kit at home to keep a bottle of sparkling for the next day yeah I would say that's probably about right because you want something that clamps over it creates a nice firm seal and then kind of captures all that pressure in there so it doesn't all escape away they even make a fancy gold version if you yeah (laughs) you can always just find a friend and drink the rest of the bottle and it'll be fine (laughs) I was going to say, I know what I'm asking for for Christmas, but also I'd rather have a friend to drink the wine with. (laughs) So what other topics do you have on sparkling? I guess we didn't really talk about rosé 
sparklings as my era at all. So um, I think this is kind of new and it's part of the one of those things that's like, and is it new because I'm just noticing it more or is it also like more demand? Is this more available? But I feel like there's a lot more rosé sparkling out and about in the world. Um, so, you know, you can refer back to how, how rosé is made in a previous episode, but just using red grapes to help get that rosé color and flavor and, and then doing it in the sparkling method, traditionally or non-traditionally. Yeah, that kind of is a little bit more fun, too, because, you know, rosé itself is kind of a fun wine, and then you add the sparkling into it, and it's just extra special. Mm-hmm. And doesn't have to be sweet. Right, exactly. Sure. Which takes us to the levels of sweetness in a sparkling wine, because a lot of times, especially with champagne, they use different terminology than you may be used to. Brute is more dry, but it's not the driest. So you have extra brute, which is super dry. Um and then fruit, then it goes to sec, which is sort of sweet. <laughs> Demi sec it is sweeter. And then do. And do is, do is sweet. Yeah. And all of that happens by what they put back in the bottle. So when we were talking about how you have to get rid of the sediment and it shoots out and then you have to rebottle it. Well, obviously that left a little bit of space in your bottle. So you've got to fill it with something. So you're going to fill it with a little bit more wine. And that is where the sweetness level is added. So, you know, like you're no sugar, you're completely dry, probably just has straight wine going back in, no sweetness. But then you're very sweet. That little bit that's going back in is going to be super sweet so that the overall um, composure of the wine is whatever sweetness level you want. Always a very good thing to have, a little bit of complexity with your... Yeah, and sweet isn't as bad in sparkling wine because it goes with the acidity. So... Even if you're not a sweet wine drinker, um, your level of tolerance for sweet on sparkling wine will probably be a little higher just because of the acidity. So I have a question for you guys. Is Have you found any sparklings that are worth the splurge? Like any premium brands um, you know, that, that are worth the higher price point? One of our favorites uh, locally is the Chateau Reserve from Biltmore. Um, I personally think it's probably the best wine that they make. Um, and it's always, you know, it's 50, 50 plus dollars a bottle typically, um, but worth every penny um, because it is always fantastic. Um, outside of outside of the U.S., I mean, in France, we, we occasionally get French, French champagne, but it's not something you find as often, at least for us. We, we don't find that as often, but some local producers uh, on the East Coast, we like Herman J. Weimer up in the Finger Lakes. Uh, they have a massive sparkling program, um, and they do some fantastic sparkling wines. Um, and then we there's this little winery called Acquiesce in Lodi in California, and she does a sparkling Grenache Blanc. Um, she only grows um, Rhone Valley varietals, and she uses those for white wine and rosé uh, only. So she doesn't do any red wine, um, but she does a sparkling Grenache Blanc, and it's fantastic. So... That sounds amazing. And then going back here to North Carolina, though, I would say that pretty much any winery here that is offering a sparkling, it's a good sparkling wine. Yeah, there, there's really, absolutely. There's really no one in the state that's not doing you know a, a great job with their sparkling program. So, and this would include we're seeing a lot more pet nats, uh, mm-hmm. petulant naturales, mm-hmm. um, which are more ancestral method, uh, where they don't do the, the the secondary fermentation is directly basically you. you 
cap it while the fermentation, first fermentation is still going on. So that's a little different than the traditional method. Um, and so we're doing, we're seeing a lot more of those within the state and then some of them are fantastic. Yeah. And yeah. I definitely recommend if you see a sparkling from a winery here in the state and you're out there tasting it, you know, don't hesitate to get a sample Absolutely. of it. You'll probably like it because there's nothing wrong yeah. with sparkling. Yeah. And we didn't even get into pet maps, but that's a fun new friend, friend, new old frontier. <laughs> exactly. It's a fun some of us that you know, don't really know what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. Right. Each bottle is different because right. it depends on how the fermentation goes once the, once it's capped. It's so alive. It's, it's alive, and you're gonna have you're gonna have the lees in, in there. So you either decide to shake it up and drink all of that, or you pour it out slowly. Um, you turn the bottle upright, have it nice and cold, and then you pour it out slowly to avoid that. So yeah. Either way, it's fine. It's just you know it's not gonna hurt you to drink it. So just add a little extra. Uh, je ne sais quoi, I guess. To, to <laughs> so a question for the two of you. Do you have a preferred style of sparkling wine? I will say I am a fan of more traditional methods. Um, I like Prosecco, but I just, I can tell a difference with the traditional method and it's my favorite. Yeah, I would agree with you as well, Jesse. Yeah. Um, but I also love a good mimosa and I'm not above <laughs> <laughs> whatever um, kind of sparkling wine for that. I, I guess I kind of gravitate towards Cava's because traditional methods, it's got that more yeasty flavor, but they're more accessible and affordable. Um, and we bringing it back home to North Carolina, you know, we have, we do have some amazing ones happening. Like the one from Surrey Cellars. Is that Petite Mansing they use? That yes. they did? They did. Yeah. Yes. They kind of switch it up all the time. Yeah. But... Oh man, that was so good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and just a, a a nice grape to use for that method. Yeah, and McRitchie has a great pet nat, mm -hmm. and Plebe has a bunch of different sparklings that are wonderful. Yeah, and Botanist yeah. and Barrel as well. They've got several from in the cider realm. But we are a fan of sparkling anytime. Mm -hmm. You just can't go wrong with a little bit of sparkling in your glass. No, and it can just elevate the everyday. Yeah. Yeah, don't save it for, have it on a special occasion, but don't save it for a special occasion. It's fine right. to have it on a Tuesday night. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and one other thing, when you're tasting it, don't swirl it. <laughs> you might swirl the bubbles out. Yeah, you need all those bubbles in there. So don't get over vigorous or you'll... Yeah, and that's why the skinnier glasses are ideal, because they keep the bubbles better. Well, Jesse and Jessica, as always, this has been a pleasure. Cheers to both of you. Thank you so much for being part of our educational segment this season. We definitely have learned a lot and we appreciate you taking some time to educate our listeners. And we look forward to next season. Well, we're always learning too. Cheers. Cheers. You can find out more information about the Wine Mouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now back to the show. So we're back with David Bauer from Surrey Community College. So David, uh, let's talk a little bit about the vineyard and what varieties are growing in the vineyard. And are the wines yes. produced strictly from, from the vineyard at the college or do you bring in fruit from other local vineyards as well? Um, so we have now 15 different varieties 
I don't know if I can name every single one of them. It'd be a, it'd be a question for Ms. Bowman, uh, Sarah Bowman, who's our viticulturist. Uh, I can name pretty much all of them, but, uh, you know, you put me on the spot here. Uh, we focus a lot on um, on vinifera that is growing throughout the state. Yeah, so that's probably number one. Um, but if I can speak for Ms. Bowman, um, our viticulturist, I would say that uh, between the two of us, we're really focused in on hybrids, too. Um, we're really interested in seeing what grows what what grows well number one and we find that just because of our climate and because of um because well really just because of our climate and and this the the way that the grapes grow um here uh i would say that hybrids do incredibly well and can produce more consistent yield uh from year to year and stay healthy um, and so those are things that we focus on. So we do focus on vinifera and we have a number of different vinifera varieties. One of the varieties that I think is, uh, really, really going to be popular in the future is Albarino. Um, we're the second vineyard in the state to plant Albarino behind sanctuary vineyards. And, uh, I would say that, uh, it's probably my favorite wine to make in the cellar. Uh, I love Albarino. I think that we will be successful with it in the future. The other one is Petite Mansang, but we use Petite Mansang uh, for our sparkling wine program. So that's the baseline for our, our sparkling wine program. Um, we also blend in a bit of Cabernet with our, uh, in our cuvee and a bit of Chardonnay. And we actually made a Cab Franc, as an aside, we made a Cab Franc sparkling uh, rosé uh, a few years ago as well. So we have uh, done a number of different white varieties, and I will say that white varieties are more consistent in the vineyard um, from year to year uh, than our reds. Our reds, uh, there's a whole conversation about red, vinifera red grapes <laughs> in North Carolina uh, from our perspective. Uh, I would say that there are some that do really well, and the one that I'm really excited about that we planted that uh, does really well is Tanat, actually. So Tanat does incredibly well. It's pretty consistent, uh, and uh, we really like it. And the biggest thing that we like about it is the wine quality, and that it can keep a really low pH, and it can get ripe. And even uh, such a subpar year as we had this past season, which – you know, we, we went from one of the best seasons on record uh, into, uh, in 2019 to one of the worst in 2020. Uh, so I would say that uh, <laughs> in all of it, uh, looking at every single grape, that uh, Tanat did really well. On the white side, uh, we did lose our Albarino mm. but we, uh, from, a, from a late season frost, but uh, – we did really well with our Petit Mansing this year and for a sparkling uh, base for the previous year. But actually this year we did a Petit Mansing barrel fermented, um, a barrel Petit Mansing. Uh, and, uh, and then on the red side, Tanat. And of course, our hybrids did amazingly well. Our Tremonet was fantastic and our uh, Chamberson was really, really, really great. We had high yield Chamberson. Um, so really, really nice uh, on the hybrid. So what performs well 
in a subpar year. Well, hybrids do really well and select Nifera. Uh, there are a number of other different grapes that we have. We test and we trial. Um, we had um, Aromella, which was a hybrid variety that we just recently actually did away with, and we're going to be replanting it to something else. Sarah and I have not decided what that might be yet, but we will. Uh, we're trying to figure out another another Albarino, <laughs> you know, trying to find something else that will do really well. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so we just uh, have, uh, let's see, anything else uh, that we're trialing. Um, we, we find that Petit Verdot is, is okay. Uh, we find that Merlot does okay, but it's nothing like, it's nothing like to not, nothing like to not. So um, overall, we've got 15 different varieties on, I think now, six or eight different training systems that Sarah is trialing. Um, and uh, the best part about the vineyard is that the students are exposed to so many different things. They're exposed sure. to all these training systems they're exposed to all these varieties and they can see what happens in a subpar year and in a great year because they do have um they get two years of experience right so their first year is introduction and their second year is actually producing the wines and so they get two years and this current class uh got to see 19 bits and pieces of 19 and did participate in 20 and learned a lot, I think, from working with both vintages. So when do you begin the decision and how much involvement uh, do the students have in this of deciding what to do with a particular variety when it comes in? So how did you decide, okay, is it, is it, is it based on the chemistry of the fruit that, okay, this petite man saying we're going to make this barrel fermented with this, this one we usually do sparkling. How do you make that decision? Uh, and, and like, what time frame is is that decision made? Is it when the grapes are still on the vine, or is it is it when you get them in um, to the crush pad? So it kind of goes back to my philosophy and how I teach. Uh, so there's this concept that I read about years ago in this book called Postmodern Winemaking. Uh, really, really great book. Um, I would recommend that everybody read it who is a going to be a serious winemaker. Uh, I have I recommend it to my students. Um, and it's got this concept in it called vineyard enology. Um, vineyard enology is interesting. It, it basically puts the vineyard first and with stylistic decisions, with, um, all the things that you were talking about, it really puts the vineyard in the light and really kind of pushes us to think about what the fruit quality is and to respond to the fruit quality in the winery. So our, our philosophy is what is going to happen with the fruit? What's the season look like? And then we are going to stylistic decision based upon the fruit. And that's how it goes. Uh, you know, we definitely, Sarah and I spend a lot of time over the summer deciding which variety is going to be best suited for what production style. But even with all of that planning, there's always going to be changes and just the way that the season goes, you know. And so we have to be versatile um, in the in in the cellar, in the winery and really, again, respond to the fruit quality. And so that's how we do it. I mean, if we're making a sparkling wine, we're definitely going to harvest early. But 
with petite man sing you know we're looking for that real strong acidic backbone which petite man sing gives us um petite man sing is really good about that it keeps a nice low ph it has it retains its acidity very well um, and so it's no matter what going to give us a really you know strong acidic backbone but it's really about uh for sparkling wine maintaining a um maintaining a lower bricks level so we want to maintain a lower bricks level so that we can go into a secondary fermentation and uh, we can go into a secondary fermentation and not have a higher alcohol sparkling wine. So we want to end around 12%. Um, so we harvest early. And uh, in a traditional winemaking setting, uh, you would harvest early and you would get, you know, like your Chardonnay would come in with, you know, good acid. But even if we harvested a little bit early, our Chardonnay most likely would still have a little bit higher pH. And that's just the nature of uh, where we grow grapes. So we really have to be very careful in making sparkling wine to get the right chemistry. Um, but for other varieties, uh, you know, we're really focused in right now, or I'm really focused in, uh, and teaching the students on how to make rosé. Um, rosé is an art. Uh, I've learned uh, to make a really beautiful rosé. You have to really, you have to really do a lot of work in maintaining an understanding that a rosé is kind of like a red, but also kind of like a white in its chemistry, um, in its, when looking at its phenolic components, uh, you have phenolics and you don't have those, uh, to the degree that you have them in a red, but you, you do have some in rosé. And so it responds a bit, the wine responds a bit like a, like a red wine, but not totally. So you're somewhere in the middle. Um, and so it's complicated and to get a really beautiful aromatic profile and to have the rosé have body and structure and some interest. These are things that people are, I think that people don't think about, but these are things that I want to teach. I would love to see a world where we have premium rosé. A lot of rosés right now on the market are all the same. When we look at the, you know, the the national and the international market, if you go into the grocery store and you look at all the provincial rosés, they pretty much all look the same and they're all about the same price point and they all pretty much taste the same. And so uh, at the college, I'm really trying to get students into understanding rosé. And so what that means is picking a little early and really responding to the fruit quality. For 2020, we made uh, a rosé from every vinifera variety that we had on uh, campus. Um, and it was uh, actually, it's really quite interesting because we made a Bordeaux blend uh, <laughs> from rosé. <laughs> uh, so we had all these, we had Merlot rosé, Cap Franc rosé, Malbec rosé, and so we blended them all together and we made this Bordeaux rosé blend. So you'll see that soon. That'll be our house rosé for 2020. We did a house rosé out of purely Malbec in 2019, which we'll uh, be releasing here just in a little bit. We got a little bit behind due to COVID, but uh, we'll be releasing it here in just a bit. But we try and keep the rosés incredibly fresh. They're uh, going to be uh, our 19 rosé Malbec is under screw cap and uh, it's incredibly fresh and then our 20 of course is really interesting and i really love the blend 
um, in Provence, it's uh, popular to do uh, to do that to blend uh, different rosés together and uh, uh, to make a house rosé. Um, and uh, it's popular in uh, other regions. People are starting to really pick it up where they're blending in certain varieties, maybe doing like a three wine rosé blend. Um, and so we're really pushing that. And so that requires a very special type of fruit. And those are things that I am teaching and we have to look for. So we go out in the vineyard and we analyze the color and we look at the color of the berries and uh, really just try and understand overall what the profile is like and not just the color, but also the sensory profile. Very exciting. I have to say we we love rosé. So seeing more emphasis on rosé is going to be a good thing, especially ways that you can differentiate rosé. Because like you said, you go to the grocery store and all the rosés you get are pretty much the same. They're good, but they're they're pretty much the same. <laughs> so one thing that you mentioned, David, was um, that really kind of struck home with me was responding to the quality of the fruit. And I think that's extremely important here in the state because you can't expect to make the same wine year after year because we live in such a varying climate area. It rains a lot. <laughs> it rains a lot. It doesn't rain a lot. It gets a lot of sun. It doesn't get a lot of sun. So I think that's an extremely important lesson for everyone in the state to learn. So I'm really excited to see what future winemakers are going to respond to that and how they actually take that to heart. Yeah, we're really, uh, we really push that both Sarah and I, and uh, I think that's the way that you make great wine is that you really have to understand that you're not going to be able to make a high quality, dry, beautiful red wine every single year. You're just not going to be able to do that in this state. And there's going to be really exceptional years, but in the years that you can't do that, you know what you do? You make sparkling wine, mm -hmm. you make Zay, and that's what we did this year. We were able to showcase that, and I think that the students are better off for it. So that, that's actually a really good segue into the Equality Alliance program, because I think, you know, we're talking about fruit quality. We want to make sure we're doing quality wines. And I know QAP is such a very important piece of who you are, David. So talk to us a little bit about QAP, what it means to you in the industry and what we're doing to, to kind of promote that throughout the state. So as you said, the QAP means a lot to me. Um, I've been involved with it now for about three or four years. Um, so the QAP is the Quality Alliance Program. It is funded by the North Carolina Wine Council, and it is administered by the North Carolina Wine Growers Association and in conjunction with Surrey Community College. Um, and so originally the program was at Appalachian State University and was, re was really, it was started there um, and with uh, Ken Goulian with uh, Round Peak Vineyards. So he was really um, the guy, the, the influence that was uh, to start that program. And then uh, slowly but surely it moved over to Surrey. Um, and, uh, we've been working with it. So, uh, what we do is quality assurance and quality control. So I don't know, uh, for those out there that don't know what that is, uh, quality assurance is a plan to manage quality in your, in your, in, in specifically here in your wines. And then quality control is the actual measurement of the quality standard. So what we do is we help wineries that are volunteer their wines. So wineries can submit wines uh, to our program and we can uh, analyze those wines for uh, their chemistry 
And then after that, we look for faults. And faults are problems within wines. Uh, faults can be a number of different things. There's so many faults out there. Uh, but we actually will analyze for those major faults in the laboratory. And then I have a trained panel of sensory uh, people who have been trained on the sensory identification of uh, different faults in wine. And they look for these faults and uh, to, to determine if the wine may, meets a basic standard of quality. So the basic standard of quality is fault-free. We're not looking to say, you know, well, this wine should taste like this. Um, we're looking for faults. And we're trying to understand, uh, and I'm trying to better understand that basic standard of quality. Um, and so what I do with that data is provide education and back to the wineries. So if there was a winery that did have a, a problem uh, with one of their wines, we definitely make sure that that problem is really a problem. And then beyond that, what we'll do is we'll reach back out to the winery and I'll give them remediation information or I'll teach them how to fix that problem in the future and uh, why that problem even occurred in the first place, which is kind of like this whole loop, right? We have wines that get submitted, they get tested. If there's a problem, we go back to the winery and we say, wow, okay, let's try and, let's try and fix this so this never happens again. And what that does is it raises the standard of quality throughout the state. Um, and it maintains that we have uh, fault-free wines. And then at the end, if you do pass the program, you get this little sticker and the sticker goes on and it says basically you are assured uh, that this wine is fault free. The consumer is assured that, the, that this wine is fault free. And you can talk about that in the tasting room and how important that is to your brand to maintain that. Um, and so we do have a number of different wineries that are uh, part of the program. But I will say that over the last year, we've been fighting for funding from the NC Wine Council. Uh, we were not funded uh, this, pre this previous year. Um, and we've submitted again to be funded. And so I can't say enough that out to the wineries and vineyards out there, please uh, support the program and talk to the people that you know, the wineries that you know about how important that quality is to North Carolina, because this is a program that we can actually use to enact real quality change um, in the wines that we make in the state. And I am happy to uh, work with the wineries and to really help champion the effort, uh, but it's a collaborative effort. It's not just me. It has to be a collaborative effort to really push the quality and to raise the quality of wines that we make in the state. And so that's a bit about the Quality Alliance program. Um, and uh, I just can't emphasize enough how important it is. Yeah, we're right there with you. I think improving the the overall quality of wine in the state is such a valuable thing. So you mentioned a little bit about how people can get involved by, you know, telling people they want more quality wine, but how, what are some things that people could really do to, to kind of, you know, further this along? Word of mouth is always great, but what, what other ways can people help, whether it's individual consumers or the people in the industry itself? Sure. I mean, individual consumers can ask about the program in the tasting room. I think that that's important. And there are some uh, wineries that do that do have the seals on their bottles, but we need more wineries. We need more wineries getting involved. So uh, reach out to me um, about the program and let me know about your interest and uh, and I can relay that. Um, you can actually talk to your North Carolina wine, um, the, the North Carolina wine board 
there are members on that board that you can reach out to and, and voice how important the program is. Um, because once we uh, move forward with this round of funding, um, I'm hoping to really invigorate the program even more and to push it forward. So you reach out to those NC Wine Council members um, and tell them how important it is. Perfect. Yeah, we'll definitely post some information about that in our in our show notes so that people who look at this later on will have some resources to go. So I guess it's uh, time to talk about the elephant in the room. It is 2020. So let's talk about COVID and how COVID has impacted the program at Surrey and, and some of the events that you would typically host there and um, travel to the festivals and such as well. Well, COVID has changed the way that we teach. Um, it's been, for lack of a better word, it's been a little rough. Uh, we have adjusted the best that we can. Um, so back in the spring, um, it was tough because we kind of didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, you know, this all hit us at once. And so along with a lot of other colleges in the state, um, we moved to remote learning. And that was really tough for my students who were getting a lot of hands-on experience. Um, and all of a sudden now you have to, as an instructor and as a student, learn online, which you never signed up for. Uh, so that was really difficult to move through that. Um, in the summer, uh, we did our classes purely online. And now in the fall, we're back to uh, part online, part in person. So we're actually able to um, work with, I'm, I'm in my production class right now. We're actually been able to utilize masks and gloves and all the things that we're supposed to to use in the winery um, and, uh, you know, keeping as much um, uh, distance as we can from others um, and uh, actually go through the class. And we did process grapes and we did everything that we needed to do this semester um, and we haven't had any problems. So uh, I would say that uh, we've been successful in, in that right. Uh, we've been doing a good job uh, in the winery and uh, we hope to continue teaching in that way. Um, in the future. So uh, COVID did that. And uh, COVID also took us out of the out of the winery a little bit and kind of shook up the schedule for bottling because uh, I didn't have any help. And so, you know, we kind of had to move forward with that. And COVID has really been uh, been rough on uh, moving forward for uh, students. I think a lot of students want to take classes online right now. And we really, you know, are, are pushing forward our our seated classes here are coming up in the spring and in the following fall. And so I would say in general, the educational system is kind of in a little bit of limbo right now and seeing how things are going to shake out. Um, but I think there is a bit of a silver lining for the industry and for overall online education. I've been a huge proponent of online education for a long period of time. Um, I never took an online class uh, before. I never took an online class myself. And then as soon as I found out more about online education and how important it could be to reach people in certain places um, that usually are not serviced by a community college, um, it was something that I kind of uh, latched onto. 
really quickly. And so online is so important. Um, I started with Vesta, the Viticulture and Technology uh, Science and Technology Alliance, back in 2012. And in about 2014, I started teaching online with them. Um, and I'm actually now a principal investigator of the new grant that's coming forward. So I've really grown with with Vesta, and I really find that Vesta is uh, incredibly important to, like I said, reaching students that are not really serviced by a um, community college. So I have students in my class from all over. I have had students from you know the middle of Nebraska to uh, down in Miami, Florida. You know, and these are not traditional wine growing regions, but these are students that uh, can't get the education but can get it online. And so online education has been awesome. And so I've been doing that and teaching uh, in a synchronous way where I have a live session since. Uh, like I said, 2014. So for me, it was not hard to transition to online um, and uh, teaching with Sonoma State University. I teach uh, 40 to 60 students three times a year in wine business. And those students are from all over the world. I've had you know students from France and Germany and China and Spain and Greece. And so I have no problem switching over due to COVID. Um, and I think that the silver lining is now we're refining as educators, we're refining our um, techniques in the online classroom. And we're really being forced to think outside the box. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And I said that that was also a silver lining for the wine industry. With the wine industry, it's the same thing. I think that we're, we've been so so focused on selling to our small little group of wine club members now what this is doing is it's it's forcing us to think beyond our small group it's forcing us to think about selling wine online and to really push that idea forward um, and uh, to think about the whole group of wine consumers and not just your little small wine club um, I think that's what that's doing for us. And I think in the future, that's going to be really beneficial because we're going to become more savvy selling wine online. And that's where the sales are going to be. Uh, I think that is just so important as an industry. That's a great observation. I, I didn't really think of it that way, but you're right on. I mean, with uh, within person, you see a lot of wine club events. And now with this, with the transition, it's, it's definitely more, how can we get to a larger base? How can we expand our customer base and do that more virtually? Yeah, and it's good to find a silver lining in a difficult year. So, <laughs> so uh, you know, you've been in the business for a while now, whether it's the education industry, the wine industry. Uh, what are some of the things that you've learned over, over the course of the years that have really kind of, you know, left an impact on you? I would say, you know, I had this a student ask me quite, this type of question the other day. And I don't always get these types of questions, but he asked me, um, what is one thing? that you could tell a future winemaker that would one be one piece of advice that you would give to a future winemaker. Um, and I couldn't think of anything at the moment, but I think in just, uh, thinking about it and eventually what I told him is that you need to make as many wines as possible. You need to experiment. You need to think outside the box. Um, but overall making as many wines as you possibly can. Um, I think that that is just so important to get the different, uh, different, different experiences. Um, you're going to make mistakes. And I think that making those mistakes will make you a better winemaker. 
That's definitely good. Uh, good advice as well. I, I think you're right on because you don't you don't learn unless you do a lot and make some mistakes, and you have to educate yourself on how to correct those mistakes, and that kind of drives you forward. Absolutely, and you also get to hone in your style, which is kind of cool, right? So every winemaker kind of has their own style, their own way of doing things, and kind of has this creative. Many winemakers have this creative streak, and so fostering, in my opinion, I feel that you should foster that creative streak and foster that artistry, uh, because I think sometimes in school, you know, we can focus really a lot on the technical, but it's important for me as a winemaker myself to maintain some artistry to to the industry as well, because winemaking is both technical, but it is an art. And so that would be another piece that I've learned um, over, t- over time that I, I want to make different things. I don't want to always make the same thing all, all the time. I want to do different things from year to year. Um, and I think that when the, and that's a beautiful for me, it's a beautiful thing for me because I get to do that in my position and I get to actually involve the students in that artistic process. I don't know if I'd want to, uh, make the same wines every single year that maybe is not for me. Uh, and so that works really well with my position and the ability for me to teach students in that way. So that kind of made me think of a a question there too. So with your experience of, you know, not making the same wine every year, year after year, What's been either your favorite wine that has ever come out of your your winery or the uh, the best wine that you've ever had there? Um, over the past couple of years, uh, we've done some really interesting things. I, I guess I can think of one that has always been our our go to, and that's our Nativo Reserve. Um, our Nativo Reserve is something that I started in when I first began. It was a project that started with a couple of students and, and I talking about how we wanted to make a natural wine. This was back in 2012. Um, that This was before natural wine was even a thing. This was before wild fermentations were really becoming popular. I mean, they have been popular throughout uh, the industry from time and time again, and there have been winemakers that have championed it, but there was not really a whole lot of popular press uh, that was surrounding these, I, this idea of natural wine. And so we decided we were going to make a wild buildup culture, and we were going to inoculate our Chamberson with our wild buildup culture. And what that means is we actually go out to the vineyard and we take bits and pieces of the environment. So we take flowers, pieces of the vine, we take kudzu flowers. Uh, clover, um, anything that you can get your hands, stones, anything that you can get your hands on. And we put that in with some freshly pressed grapes. And so we actually will pick grapes before the harvest and we will crush them with our hands and we'll put them into buckets. And then we throw all that stuff in and uh, there's yeast on all of those different items. There's wild yeast. And so we allow that uh, that uh, grape and flower and stone and pieces of the vine and all of that to start a fermentation. And as that starts a fermentation, there are a number of different yeasts that are going to become dominant in that culture. And what we do then is we toss that into our chamberson grapes and we allow that wild culture to do the fermentation. And it was actually last year. Um, that we got some money to do some genetic analysis. And we've been doing this since 2012. And we found that we actually have North Carolina, wild North Carolina yeast that are not in any genetic, genetic database 
that are doing the fermentation. That's so awesome. That is something that we are very, it's not something that is done, to my knowledge, this industry in North Carolina. And that's something that I've always done with the students. And so that probably is the most unique wine that we make. Um, at the college and it also turns out to be one of our best sellers well that's really cool that's exciting to hear truly a north carolina product then truly yeah. one a uh, couple other questions here we're kind of winding down we'd like to kind of round out with a couple of these you know big philosophical questions so what are you most looking forward to in the future for the industry um i i think we talked about a lot of what i hope for the industry i hope that we move towards rosé and sparkling and white wines and we really hone in our quality and uh i hope that uh, we can evolve as, as an industry into into believing that there are certain grapes that are really really great for our industry and there are certain grapes that are not great and i think that moving forward towards a number of different varietals, a few different varietals that do really well. Um, on the vinifera side, I think that that is going to be incredibly important for us to becoming, I think, well-known um, in this industry for a certain product. And it could be sparkling. It could be Albarino. It could be a number of different things. And you know what? That's incredibly exciting to be on the floor for that for me and just trying to figure out what, what that, what that next thing is. But, um, I think that those are, those are things that we've, we've talked about and that I, those are the things I'm most excited for. Well, that's awesome. We're right there with you. I think rosé, white, sparkling, higher quality, uniting, those are all definitely, you know, extremely important themes for the state. So one kind of final question here. Um, we normally like to ask, you know, what do you want customers to know when they come to your winery or vineyard? But you're kind of more of a blended kind of uh, education. You do have the winery there as well. So what do you want customers to know when they're seeing that bottle of wine on the shelves or they're buying it or they're tasting it at, uh, you know, a wine festival or out and about? That it's a student-driven product, um, that this was actually wine that was... Uh, grown and produced by students and instructors and that it is quality and that it is really uh, a hopefully hopefully a benchmark for quality wines in the state i i believe that we have incredible uh, quality wine that we make and we put a lot of time and effort and energy every single class and every single day into producing great fruit and to producing wines that people that people can enjoy, but also um, that people can utilize as a way to better understand North Carolina. Um, whenever I go out to a, a client and a new account, um, I find how I, I, I make sure that they know that this is so important, that we have the ability to take North Carolina wine out to different people and to expose different people that may have not been ever exposed to those particular North Carolina products before. And we can do that because of our mission and because of the um, the student labor and a number of other things that we that we do that keep the prices down. And so we expose people to that and we hope that they understand that uh, that, that that North Carolina makes a quality product and that we make a quality product. So, David, uh, can you as we wrap up, can you tell, remind folks where they can find out more information about the program at Surrey as well as Surrey sellers and the wines that are available? 
it's the easiest is to just go to our website and that's www.surrey.edu slash wine. Very cool. Easy. Awesome. Well, David, thank you so much for visiting with us today, having this conversation, uh, connecting remotely, of course, in our COVID times, setting aside a little bit of time on a Saturday morning to record with us. Uh, Definitely appreciate all the work you're doing to educate the future winemakers and drive quality of wine in the state. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, David. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to David for the great conversation. It was great to hear about how he's educating people about quality and why it's so important to the industry. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NC Wine Guys. Until next time, and remember, cork only talks when it's out of the bar. Cheers. This episode is made possible in part by a grant from the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council.